folks who are operating and trying to navigate through unjust systems like our current um, law system, the practice of, of mindfulness also is about bringing us back to, to our humanity. And so, you know, just like when you're on a plane and they say, put on your mask first so that you can then help others. Like the purpose is being able to be in a position to help others. Um, and so it's actually not a selfish act, but a selfful act that allows you to fill yourself up enough to, to give to others. I'm Andrew Seligson. And I'm Marisol Morales, and you're listening to Compact Nation Podcast. Hey, Andrew, how's it going today? It's going very well. Uh, so it's my birthday this week. and Happy birthday! Thank you. And uh, we're going out Friday night, which is my actual birthday, to uh, hear some music. I'm going with Martina, my partner in life, as well as my sister and brother-in-law who live here in Boston. So I don't normally walk around out in the world listening to music because I like to be aware of what's happening. But this morning I was like, I'm going to listen to the people that we're going to hear this band called uh, Rainy Arbo and Daisy Mayhem. And I took a route that took me right through Franklin Park, big, beautiful park in Boston. And it was quiet and it was mostly empty. There's a beautiful blue sky here. And I was listening to music and I was like, I'm feeling good to be up. It's a chilly day. Could be a little warmer in March, but you know, I'm, I'm feeling good. How about you? Uh, I'm good, except it's kind of chilly and rainy here in Chicago. Uh, So you guys, I'm sure, will be getting it in a couple of days. Uh, I'm excited because I'm welcoming Virtus and Leslie uh, to uh, Chicago tomorrow. And we are taking a drive up to Milwaukee to go to the Civic Engagement Institute for Campus Compact for Wisconsin. And so we'll be there overnight. And then uh, Saturday, I head out east to Providence for the Eastern Region uh, Conference. And I just want to mention for those who don't have their Campus Compact scorecard open in front of them, Virtus Robinson, Director for Community College Engagement for the Compact, and Leslie Garvin, Director of North Carolina Campus Compact, uh, two, two star players in the Campus Compact lineup. We should get uh, playing cards with our staff across the country. Collect them all. Uh, We are missing one of our co-hosts today, uh, Emily Shields, director of Iowa, Minnesota. Uh, Campus Compact uh, couldn't be with us. Uh, She's on the road visiting campuses, um, so just with a time conflict. Um, So we miss her this time, but she'll be around for the next podcast. Yeah, and before we dig into uh, the conversations of the day, I just want to mention I'm having a strange sense of deja vu. I don't know why that is. Just, <laughs> yeah, just kind of as we lean into this I podcast. I wonder yeah. where that comes yeah, from. Yeah, no idea. So. <laughs> All right. So um, we are very excited also to have our second installment of Love Notes uh, come out uh, today. And... Um, Our Love Notes is a new blog um, that we've been putting together. Um, And love stands for living out our value of equity. So um, the goal of Love Notes is to um, support equity-based community engagement in order to create opportunities for transformative praxis. Love as an acronym and love as a way of operating in the world both require relationship building, vulnerability, reflection, opportunities for healing. And so the blog is really focused on 
on providing those um, opportunities to share space together, to collect stories of work happening on campus, and then also resources for folks who are interested in equity-based community engagement to um, share with one another. So really excited about that. And who doesn't need a little, little love? Who does not need a little love? And f- I know that um, our our sort of topic for the day is some reflections on and uh, sort of a peek into our time at the Continuums of Service Conference, the Western Region Conference. And for me, I would just mention kind of one of the highlights of that conference was hearing you, Marisol, and Virtus, and we mentioned earlier, um, talking about work that you were both doing that's central to uh, essentially central to centering equity in our work. So, um, you know, I thought that was it was a, a good thing that we've kind of featured at the conference, but also I think pervaded a lot of what the conference is about because it's a lot of what our work is about, kind of envisioning and working to build just and equitable communities with higher education playing uh, a key role. Absolutely. Yeah, it was great to share um, the idea and concept uh, with a, a broader group from across the country. I've done some of those in pockets as I've done some uh, speaking engagements, but uh, to do it at the conference and, um, you know, also hear reaction uh, from folks. And um, we got really good feedback as well from our first installment of Love Notes uh, that that was released on uh, Valentine's Day last month. Um, and so excited about continuing that work and working with others to to really think about that and um, how it manifests uh, on campuses and in the communities that we're working with. So should we talk about the conference? Yeah, let's talk about the conference. First, uh, I have to give kudos to our Western region um, staff who worked really hard in putting this conference together. It was a beautiful conference, very well thought out and intentional. Um, The title of the conference continuums this year was Beyond Borders, Embracing Multiple Ways of Knowing and Being. Um, And it took place at the University of San Diego, wonderful, beautiful uh, campus that overlooks the ocean. Um, And was it last week already? Yeah. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. yeah, it was just a very intentional conference that uh, really centered around mindfulness, around practice, around um, engaging with communities. I had the opportunity to participate in um, the mural tour to Chicano Park in San Diego, and it was uh, phenomenal, just um, very moving. It was led by a... Um, Chicano faculty member from USD uh, who does a lot of work with Chicano Park and um, very spiritual, very moving, um, great participation. And it reminded me a lot of my own community um, in Humboldt Park in Chicago um, and the connection to public art as a a way of both resistance and and storytelling. So I had the opportunity, as you know, Marisol, to say a few words at the opening of the conference about the theme and was really led to reflect on the, the the idea of multiple ways of knowing and being and thinking about that in the context of my own learning, uh, both starting in my undergraduate years, really about multiple ways of knowing and being and starting to um, 
get a deeper understanding both of different historical and contemporary ways that people have approached understanding the world and living in it, but also to think about the connection between those questions that kind of on the face of them sound like they might be about sort of cognitive psychology or about epistemology or sort of anthropological, but thinking of them really as questions of justice and the question of whether in our world we have space for people to live out their own visions and understandings individually and in communities with others, or whether in the end people will be forced to conform to visions of the world that are not their own. Um, and again, that's you know one of the ways I think about the work we do is trying to push higher education to uh, recognize the narrow scope uh, that is often uh, kind of deemed acceptable within the frameworks that uh, academia has accepted and, and to um, engage with people who can bring ways of knowing and being into the academy to try to push against that, but also just for kind of creative, uh, exciting, you know, sharing of knowledge and developing new possibilities together. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the conference did a really great job at uh, balancing all of those um, things, bringing uh, mindfulness, uh, healing spaces, um, art and music, um, and opportunities for folks to, to connect uh, and um, think deeply and, and really engage in that process of um sort of inquiry. Um, so we had a lot of really great workshops and presentations. Um, and I saw a lot of my mentors there and I really just felt like it, it felt like a reunion uh, for, for folks. So it was beautiful to see both uh, folks who've been in the field and who helped build the field, as well as um, those who are newer to the field and who are going to be reshaping it um, and taking it to, to the next level. So, so um, the other piece of what we're going to cover today in, uh, in the podcast is talking about the keynotes. And so uh, Continuums had two wonderful keynotes. Um, the first was uh, common Ground Voices, and I'll let you, Andrew, introduce the um, the players for, for that one, and we'll do a little reflection on, on that. And then the second keynote, who I will talk about, um, Rhonda McGee and uh, her work around uh, mindfulness. So do you want to start us off with Common Ground Voices? sort of both encountering some things that were familiar and that you were reconnecting with and also seeing some things that were new. And for me, this was one of the exciting new things uh, that I encountered. So uh, Common Ground Voices is a project started by a faculty member uh, in music at Boston University named Andre de Quatros. And uh, part of his view of the world is that it's a mistake to confine music to the academy or to the, the symphony hall, these formal musical spaces, and that part of that mistake is, as he talks about it, fetishizing the sonic qualities of music over and above uh, its music's other qualities, the qualities that are about bringing people together and forming bonds and shaping community and, and opening up new possibilities. So Common Ground Voices is his practical effort in the world to bring people together using music. The sort of first iteration uh, is in Jerusalem.
Jerusalem and is about bringing together Israeli and Palestinian voices uh, singing together. And he uh, brought that group to Germany for a residency where, I don't know whether it was on purpose or by coincidence, actually, but a faculty member in music at the University of San Diego named Emily Amrine uh, heard and saw them. And she proposed to Andre de Quadros that uh, they build a Common Ground Voices in uh, San Diego and Tijuana based on kind of crossing the border. So this version is called Common Ground Voices La Frontera. And uh, so that ensemble participated in the conference. So one thing they did was showed up at a reception and got us all singing. And for me, that was probably the personal highlight of the conference. Um, Do you sing in the shower? Is that why? I sing like everywhere where people can't really hear me. So <laughs> okay. if, if there's a space I am where there's nobody listening, then I am right. almost certainly singing. Uh, and yeah, so, so getting to do it in public every once in a while is fun, uh, especially in a case like that where there are like hundreds of people I can do no harm, really. Right, right, uh, right. So... Uh, yeah, but then they did this uh, plenary session uh, on, I forget what it was, maybe the Tuesday morning of the conference or something, or the Wednesday, I don't know what day it was. It was a day, and we were at the conference. It and was, it was uh, Thursday. Thursday, and it opened that day. And um, it was a, a combination of conversation between Emily Amrine and Andre de Quadras about this project and the kind of worldview that it embodies and the possibilities that it's opened up. And then also actual singing by the members of the ensemble. Um, and the music included uh, things that ranged from uh, traditional folk songs sung in English and in Spanish, um, more contemporary works, some grounded in spoken word poetry that had been uh, sort of transformed into song, uh, some pieces that were more operatic in sound. And one thing they explained to us was that some of those involved improvisation where essentially the singers were asked to sing to us what the border meant from their perspective. Um, and it was it was very powerful and uh, inspiring and, you know, all, all the things that music can be when we again, when we kind of let it do the things that it, it wants to do, uh, as opposed to kind of over defining what it's supposed to be like. Absolutely. So the title of that keynote uh, with Common Ground La Frontera was called Finding Common Ground, Building Community and Understanding Cross Political, Demographic and Perceptual Borders. Um, And for me, you know, as you had stated, um, Andrew, um, you know, it was just a very powerful expression, especially being there in San Diego in this current political um, climate and the thinking about, you know, um, or experiencing what transcending borders uh, could, could look like, right? Um, especially if we lead with humanity. And um, that was the kind of um, 
sentiment that I took away from from that keynote, um, hearing um, the the singers and and participating in that. And um, one of the songs was uh, very personal for me. The one um, that was about Elvira Arellano, who's an undocumented um, single mother who um, had taken sanctuary, and she actually took sanctuary in a local church in my neighborhood of um, Humboldt Park in in Chicago. And I was part of uh, community members who would go and, um, you know, take watch um, of the of the sanctuary of the church um, to make sure the Minutemen weren't coming or ICE. And um, so I was personally very involved in that. And I know Elvira and her her son, Saul. And so hearing that song and, and seeing sort of the beautiful expression um, of the singers with that and sort of knowing the backstory and um, was very personally powerful for me. So I was in, in tears and just thinking about the, the strength and courage of Elvira and her family and those who have taken sanctuary. And, you know, she left sanctuary to, um, bring attention to the separation of families that have been taking place through our broken immigration system. And, um, you know, and what courage it took for her to do that, knowing that she would be separated um, from from her son. So, um, again, we haven't typically used um, the arts um, in our conferences. Um, and I, I just think that it was a beautiful way to bring people together and really center folks. And so that being the first keynote of the first full day, um, I think it helped set the tone very much so for for the rest of the conference. And we heard a lot of great feedback from folks who participated in the conference about how like powerful and intentional it felt. This is just one sort of off to the side reflection, but one of the things that 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 session also got me thinking about because of just what you described, the kind of human cost of the way the border has come to function in our world. I was just thinking about, you know, we're as we record this, um, the UK is in sort of full Brexit meltdown mode. And so much of what's happening there has to do with the the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And the fact that relaxing that border has been a crucial element of achieving peace in a place that was destroying itself through violence for, you know, depending on how you count it, a century, several centuries, especially a few decades before. And the, the idea that in order to re-harden its border with Europe, which is, I think, the motivation behind Brexit, right, keeping people out, that, you know, somehow nobody thought through what does that actually mean? And one thing it means is reimposing a border that has been the source of such suffering. Uh, and so here we are, like, I don't know how that's going to end up, uh, but... It's just somehow right. Yeah, it's profoundly depressing. And so to see people acting together, singing together, joining together across the border in a kind of uh, lived manifestation of the reality of human connections in the face of those political mistakes grounded in fear and hostility. It was it was a very powerful thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it gives, you know, hope for all of us who are um, looking for a more humanistic approach to understanding and, and redefining borders.
let's talk about the second keynote, um, Rhonda McGee. And uh, Rhonda McGee is a faculty member, professor at the University of San Francisco Law School. Um, And she does um, a lot of work around contemplative and mindful law. um, And she speaks across the country on aspects of mindfulness um, and contemplative practice. And so uh, she introduced the session with a mindfulness uh, practice, Um, just, you know, having us center ourselves right after um, lunch and um, and then uh, talking about how this work um, sort of happens in in um, law and in justice work um, and the thinking and thinking about the sort of humanization process of, of mindfulness practice um, that takes place. And so we'll hear a little bit from Rhonda's uh, keynote now. I want to just say that for me, this opportunity to speak toward you is, is really, really poignant because of where we are right now in society, right? You all know, I don't really have to tell you how hard things are for many of us in America right now. Sometimes I think it's um, those of us who are privileged to spend our lives on campuses like this, um, are privileged on many levels, right? Many, many levels. But one of those is the way in which being able to operate on a campus environment is a bit of a protective space, not to say always a safe space. We all know that, right? Lots of vulnerabilities running through these campuses, which we're going to name and talk a little bit about as well. But as compared to people who are living outside the borders, if you will, of our campuses, you all know what I'm talking about. People whose the neighborhoods through which we often pass to get to our campuses. Um, we are living in a bit of a protected space, relatively speaking. And so I come to you um, with a certain sense of the urgency of kind of recognizing what we're up against as we seek to bring a different approach to teaching and learning and one that recognizes the real importance of our inner lives as we gauge in work for justice. All right, so the topic, of course, is the inner work um, of engagement for justice, embodied mindfulness for well-being and for, and for being well with others. Embodied mindfulness for well-being and for being well with others. Okay. Mindfulness, kind of a catch term for all of these ways of knowing that draw on deep awareness and presence, right? Embodied in the way that I'll describe it and we'll we'll sort of, we're already experiencing. Who isn't, whatever we're doing, it's always embodied. So it's always a little bit weird to throw embodied in front of something as if as human beings, we could do anything in any other way but that. (laughs) Right. But we often forget the body, especially in spaces like this. Right. Especially in spaces for higher education. And it's not by accident, I don't think. Let's just say I'm going to drop that out as a as a, a hypothesis that maybe it's not a. It's not an accident 
that the body gets left to one side when we come into spaces of higher education. Why is that? Why is that? Especially when now neuroscientists and neurobiologists are telling us so much about the radical interconnectedness between the body and the brain, if you will, right? It's always radically interconnected. In fact, you know, again, neurobiologists are telling us this part of the body, the enteric nervous system, so completely interconnected with all that we're learning about the brain, brain science, the power of that neocortex, this prefrontal system, the executive thinking, you know, homo sapien sapien, right? This is the part that we think of as defining, defining ourselves as humans in a certain sense. But biologists are telling us always intricately interconnected with all of the body, especially this that we call colloquially the gut, right? So taking care of the whole body is always essential. And learning through embodied practices, actually much, much, much more important than we realize. And there are ways, I think, that that unwillingness to investigate the wisdom of the body is part of linked to systems of oppression in our society, linked to systems of gender-based oppression, linked to systems of what we've learned to call race-based oppression. Different ways that people have been trained in and out of wisdom in our own bodies, knowledge that comes from our lived experience in the world. We've been trained out of recognizing these things. We've been trained out of recognizing our connections, despite these so-called differences, the capacity to connect despite these so-called differences, right? So um, in my view, a contemplative approach to justice invites a reconnection between these things we've been taught to disconnect. Um, Indeed, Mindfulness as just one contemplative approach. Uh, I have been trained by a number, been fortunate to be trained by a number of teachers in traditional Buddhist traditions, right? I'll just name a particular, I'm a point, I'm I'm, I'm from the South, so everyone's talking about Amma, right? I'm a point, I'm going to point to, right? Because we're here, we're formal. I'm a point to. So Buddhist teachers who have, um, without whom I wouldn't be here, right? Norman Fisher, um, a teacher in a tradition of Buddhism, frankly, um, that has been translated into something we call mindfulness. Um, John Kabat-Zinn, well known for mindfulness-based stress reduction, originally taught by a Korean American teacher, or a, a teacher who, whose heritage was... Um, from Korea. So many of us who know anything about mindfulness actually owe a great debt to cultures of longstanding and deep regard in Asian, different, very different Asian diasporic communities, broad and wide and deep. 
So when we use the word mindfulness, I'm just going to say, especially when I use it, I'm talking about a set of practices that that not exclusively, but in a significant part, owe their we owe we owe what we know about them to these cultures. And I just want to name that because I think that's a measure of at least that much respect and acknowledgement. It's important. But these practices don't only come from those communities. And I do think importantly, they reside in many respects in all our communities, perhaps under different names and in different in different um, packages. John Kabat-Zinn defines mindfulness as paying attention on purpose in a particular way. And by particular way, he means a kind of openness to what arises right now. You see the connection between that indigenous approach to, to speaking and mindfulness. It's open to what is arising right now, paying attention to what's called for right now, right? So not glossing over. If people are too tired, they need to eat, if they need to move, right? All of the ways that sometimes if we're only thinking about this part of the, the you know, what's important in a, in a place like this, we might be missing really what's called for right now. So paying attention in a particular way, on purpose, with intentionality, um, and with an openness to what is arising right now. One way we describe what we mean by mindfulness Practices that engender that kind of ability to pay attention, right? So that's expanding mindfulness a little bit. Mindfulness as a characteristic or a quality. Mindfulness as practices that engender that kind of capacity to pay attention in a particular way with openness, with intentionality, with flow, if you will, right? Not getting stuck. Um, another way to think about mindfulness is sort of the way of being in the world. I've already alluded to it, flow not getting stuck, that can result from engaging in these practices on a regular basis. Resilience can come from that. Healing can come from that, and so on. What's the link between all that and some notion of justice? And I'm going to say some notion of justice, radically mindful of the fact that we don't have very much time left already, right? Notions of justice. All of us carry different notions. What do we mean by, by justice? I'm going to say for now, Again, as a law professor, deeply steeped in all kinds of different ideas and philosophies and jurisprudences, I often go back to Martin Luther King, who had a particular view of justice. He wasn't, in fact, a lawyer or a law professor, though he actually had wanted to be. How many of you have heard that story? Martin Luther King wanted to go to law school, wasn't accepted, ended up right, going into um, theology instead, right, studying theology and philosophy instead. Perhaps the world is better off that he didn't go to law school. Who knows, right? He had a view of justice. Martin Luther King's view of justice was justice is, first of all, love. Okay. I could stop there. But he had more. Love correcting that which stands against love. Wow. Can we say that again? Love correcting that which stands against love. Wow. So justice for Martin Luther King, a very public manifestation of justice, uh, of, of love in action, right? Correcting, it's doing something. It's not just a feeling we have, we can put on a card somewhere and stick on a window, right? Or a bumper sticker. It's doing, it's active in the world, correcting. But it's 
is correcting through and through with love. Right? So a kind of compassion, if you will, compassion as defined by the scholars and researchers of compassion, compassion as the will to alleviate the suffering of others. Okay, so compassion, not just, not, not pity, not just feeling, you know, a certain way. Again, active, the will to alleviate the suffering of others. Or myself, right, I should say, because self-compassion comes up as well and is important when we do this work. The will to alleviate our own suffering. How many of you know something of what I'm talking about when I say our own suffering might need to be something we bring within the scope of our work for justice? Yes? Yes. Changing the world from here is our motto. Changing the world from here. And that means it can mean a lot of different things. But for me, I point right to the heart because that's essential. And it, and it goes to the core of the ecological model for social change that arises for me out of this contemplative work. Ecological model for social change and social justice, meaning always already embedded in the world, hypersensitive to the permeability of, of our relationships one to another. And the need, yes, to, to mind and remember the lines of separation, the borders, all the things that are framing this conversation at this conference. What are those borders, right? That we can obviously readily break and come together from this radically different, diverse group of people who are just like enough, like a, a, a sea of enough at this particular kind of protest. Very different people, very different insights and energies just reflected in just perhaps this one image. Coming together, though, in, in that way, navigating borders, right? What have you been drawing on as support in the work that you have been doing to navigate borders? You've been doing this all your lives, haven't you? Haven't we? Haven't we? Because we live in a world that's radically divided and separated. We've all inherited all kinds of themes and norms and practices for separation. Anybody know what I'm talking about? We've inherited a world that's completely built up around themes and norms of separation. Every neighborhood we've ever been to in this country, at least in some way, can probably trace itself back to some kind of official policy that was arrayed around keeping certain people in and certain people out. Neighborhood to neighborhood, and certainly borders that define our nation, which are obviously we're right up against here and, and feeling the pain of trying to reinstitute this idea of a hard border between this country and the countries to the South, the particular, so to say, country to the South, Mexico, that of course used to be, used to include this land right here, right? Where the border sort of changed and shifted Right. As a result of that thing we call the Mexican-American War that gave rise to the state of California. So we know something about obviously going traversing borders, very live, actually. And so, in fact, we could be talking about a having a conversation about when are we not maybe trying to navigate borders? Because actually we always are. And what are we drawing on when we do this? What are we drawing on as we do this? Well, I just want to offer that one 
of the insights of contemplative pedagogy and practice of the sort that those of us who've worked with organizations like the Center for Contemplative Mind and Society um, and other organizations that are helping us figure out how to bring an inner dimension to our work are often arrayed around underscoring common humanity, right? Because that's one of the insights that often arises for us when we engage in these practices. I mean, just pause for a second. We breathe. How many of us actually created the, breathe, the air you just breathe? I don't know. Just saying. <laughs> how many of us like literally created it? No, we don't. Right. And yet, how long would any one of us survive without it? How many of us created the water? How many of us, again, as, as Carrie so beautifully reminded us, got here by ourselves? We don't. We are radically interconnected. I teach a class called tort law, personal injury law. And, and, and often I am given to think with my, my students about just uh, the infinite number of people whose willingness to obey certain kinds of norms enabled us to get here. Right. In the hotel I'm staying at, I have, I'm privileged to have a room up above Right, kind of high enough up that I can watch all these be the beautiful dance of human beings in car these these cars that are doing some damage to the environment. Let's just say, but in these cars, we've figured out a way to navigate that has a certain underacknowledged beauty and and grace and respect deeply built in. We will stop when we come to those stop signs and lights, et cetera, to most of the time, most of the time, not always, right? To minimize, but to minimize the harm that we do and that occurs to, uh, to ourselves, to others, always interconnected, minimizing harm, aware of our common humanity, wanting you to get home to your children just like I want to get home to my, my partner, my beloved. We don't think about all of those things. But if you've ever been in a country, as I have, you know, spent a little bit of time in India, for example, uh, Mumbai, beautiful country. My partner's family, his family, originally from Mumbai, actually. So we went there some years ago for his sister's wedding, had the sari on, had the whole thing. That's another story. <laughs> but it was great in many ways. And also completely talk about crossing borders and intersecting. Right. For me, so many things were different when I went to India, that after a few days out in the world, right, in Mumbai, I literally needed a day in the room just to kind of, just like, like overwhelmed by the sights and sounds and senses that were radically so different. Talk about crossing and intersecting. So think about what it's like when people come from other cultures to ours, right? And we're sort of just doing our thing. This business of being an intersected, diverse community is not, as, is not as easy as is advertised. It's really just challenging, physically challenging, actually. We need more compassion and kindness, therefore. Everybody is suffering, whether they just got off the plane from Mumbai or vice versa, right? Or just carrying some wounds from childhood that you can't see. Everybody's suffering. And again, how we are in the world is always radically interconnected. So this common humanity, aware of our common humanity and awareness of it, the way that we're always impacting each other by how we are in the, in the moment. 
So this ecology of social justice for me is about seeing the link between personal, interpersonal, and systems and collective work. They're, it's not even linked. They're always, always happening interrelatedly all the time. There is no human being that is not always already in some kind of relationships, and those relationships are always in systems and collectivities. So everything we do to try to make our own selves a little bit more healed is going to have a positive impact on the world. I mean, the idea that preparing someone well for work in the world, right, credentialing a person should somehow bypass everybody's need for healing is, is again, I think a, a kind of a, a legacy of a structure of oppression, that a way that the structures of oppression are embedded in our institutions of higher education, that we wouldn't even think that we need to be mindful of the woundedness of all of us as we move through those campuses and the capacity that might be present for us to heal as we go, as opposed to re-wounding. So trauma-informed and trauma-sensitive mindfulness and contemplative practices, edu education, pedagogy, that's all part of this work. We want our classes and our campuses to be places where people can, yes, learn and prepare themselves and develop. But how are they going to do that if they're carrying major unhealed wounds? It's, they might do it. We've most of us, many of us, I'll say, have done it in some ways. I have done it as a person who carried a number of different wounds from childhood into fancy University of Virginia. I'll name the place right where I went to school for three degrees. So um, we can do it. We can manage to get through these institutions if they're not trying to heal us. But so much the better if we can work to try to heal as we go. Um, so I'm wrapping this up by just, again, reminding us of this ecology of transformation, personal practice at the foundation, some commitment to healing as we go. Seeing that as something that supports us in our interpersonal connections, in how we are with each other, in being willing to, oh, challenge ourselves when we feel challenged to talk about our pronouns, right? Or challenge ourselves to kind of get on the front line and help support people in a community that's in distress, right? How it is that um, personal practices can support us in turning physically toward what is difficult and figuring out a way to break through what might get in the way of us act being active in the world from our highest and best. I have written a number of things about the things that I'm talking about here. And this book is coming out, um, my first actual book on these themes, this September. And it is an invitation for us to practice together in ways that I'm describing here. I focus here on racial justice just simply because race is a hard thing for us to work on, work on, work on together across lines of real and perceived difference. And we all know how important it is in these times to start turning toward race and racism, because when we don't, it makes us all vulnerable to being divided again along those lines. But it's not just about race. Any kind of social justice is always embedded in every other kind. Nothing is separate. And yet you can't do full, complete justice around race, let's say, if you're not also thinking about class. You can't do full justice around environmental justice and climate justice if you're not also thinking about gender and, and sex orientation. You have to create capacity to be complex in your compassion. And 
So as we close this moment together, right, everything that I hope you've heard in this talk has been about recognizing the wisdom of your own body, the wisdom of the bodies that we're privileged to work with on campus and out and, and intersecting with all the worlds that surround our campuses. Realizing that there's a flow through of our personal, our interpersonal, and the collective systems we wish to change. And at the beating and loving heart of that is you and your need for healing and growth and well-being and practices that support you in that. What are some of the things you need to break through to heal more for yourself, to be a more of an agent for healing, for those that you work with every day, to the new human beings that you haven't yet met, who you fall in love with when you do, right? How is it that we need to work every day to break through the things that get in the way for our, of our own healing so that we can help serve the world? These are the things I want us to be thinking about together as we go. And in conclusion, if I haven't somehow said it one way or the other, this is the basic message. <laughs> love is my curriculum. What's yours? You are my kin and my teachers. Thank you so much. So um, now that folks have had a chance to listen a little bit to um, Rhonda's keynote, which was titled The Inner Work of Engagement for Justice, Embodied Mindfulness for Well-Being and Being Well with Others. Um, Andrew, thoughts? So, you know, th there's obviously a lot about the spirit of the work and, and the practical work that Rhonda McGee is doing that um, speaks to me in the sense of kind of preparing ourselves to do the work of justice and uh, understanding our positioning in the world all seems really important. And I also see, especially for people who uh, live their lives in spaces that are hostile to them, where, where they are unwelcome, where they encounter aggressions of various kinds, that kind of the need for uh, self-care as a way of making it possible to go on day to day and to kind of gather strength to work toward, uh, toward better things. All of that makes sense to me. I will say that there's this part of me in the context of a world where so many people seem entirely obsessed with their own well-being and unwilling to consider the well-being of others, that the language of self-care always makes me a little bit nervous. And the idea of sort of looking inward when... You know, again, I, I feel like there we you know, I was thinking about the the college admissions scandal that that just hit uh, and, and this context of people so profoundly obsessed with their own well-being, that of their children, that they, you know, are, have just lost any sense of proportion. Right. There's a lot that's wrong sort of revealed by that scandal. But just at the very basic level, people spending a half million dollars to buy a kid a spot at any university, just like so profoundly off course. And so, you know, I feel like in Campus Compact's DNA is the idea that one of the responses to this is put people in context where they are thinking not about themselves, but about other people and and 
asking them to learn from that experience and focus less on the self, more on others, and then think about how they might behave differently, et cetera. And so, so for me, there's a kind of like a tension in the idea of this inward turn that, um, that just was, was raised for me by, by thinking about, uh, the, the, you know, the way that Rhonda approaches this work. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, so I have several thoughts on this, but I think with the, so I'll, I'll just touch quickly on the college admission scandal. Like, I don't know how it shocks anyone. There is no meritocracy there. The rich have always, um, had, um, aspects to influence systems of power. And this is no different. It's just that um, there's an indictment and some people might go to jail, but um, we've had those systems in place forever. And, um, and there's an unjust system um, at work when, you know, a mother who puts a different address to get her child into a um, decent public school uh, outside of her zip code goes to jail for that. And um, folks with money can, buy a building at a campus and get access. So, or legacies, the scholarships are all those things. So side note, I mean, for me, the, the self care piece is not just in terms of like, um, doing yoga or going on a retreat, but it is really about if you are going to be in the trenches doing justice work, um, attacked, uh, have the pressures of um, institutional systems of oppression uh, placed on you, then you do need a place to, to go back and heal to continue um, that fight. That may be the sanctuary of your place of worship. That may be uh, a kitchen table at your grandmother's house. Uh, that may be um, finding time to do some self-reflection, uh, because if not, it causes burnout. So, and I think also with folks who are operating and trying to navigate through unjust systems, um, like our current um, law system, the practice of, of mindfulness um, also is about bringing us back to, to our humanity. And so I think that, um, you know, for those folks who participate in the issue, I think is our um, kind of collective value of um, not collective value, but our um, value of the rugged individual, right? This rugged individualism that we have, and and so the purpose around sort of the different ways of knowing allows us to bring aspects of like practice from other cultures into uh, and to challenge that idea of individualism um, for the collective. And, you know, just like when you're on a plane and they say, you know, put on your mask first so that you can then help others. Like the purpose is, you know, being able to be in a position to help others. Um, and so it's actually not a selfish act, but a selfful act that allows you to fill yourself up enough to to give to, to others. Um, and for me, that's what she was talking about was, um, was really based and rooted in, in that. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I, I think that's an interesting sort of reframing for me, the idea that we're, we're talking about not sort of obsessing about yourself, but understanding yourself in a broader context. Um, and I do think like so many things, um, you know, these, as you were saying, I mean, I think yoga is a very interesting example of this, right? Like yoga, obviously a, a uh, practice with deep tradition behind it. Um, 
and that for some people is is a very uh, a serious undertaking that is about self-examination and self-improvement in the context of, again, these larger traditions. And for other people, it's part of the lifestyle that's also connected to, you know, I will fight like crazy if somebody reduces, you know, says that there could be multifamily homes in my neighborhood and, you know, I am doing everything to maintain my property values and I go to yoga on Tuesday mornings or whatever. And I just think, it, you know, it's, it's hard for me to somehow, to, to pull these things apart, um, given the sort of lifestyleization of, of concepts like self-care, et cetera. And so I think like being in spaces where people are articulating more deeply what these things are really about and uh, how it's connected to uh, significant work and not sort of merely uh, self-satisfaction, that's, that's useful for me. Yeah. And I mean, you know, not to kind of um, conflate or generalize, but I think that, um, you know, that work uh, around, um, I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like it's just the commercialization of those practices that you're talking about versus actually um, it as a practice of radical self-care, radical self-love to be able to then do the work in 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 the community right um because you're always operating in systems that are taking and then where are you in spaces that are giving for you to right and um i mean you know even the earth takes a break right um winter right and uh what what happens when spring comes right and so uh even if we mimic the, the natural practices of, of our environment for, for ourselves, um, you know, we have to be able to, to take that time. And I think that that's part of it. And, and especially doing this, this work, right. Um, it can be exhausting and you see people, um, especially people of color leaving academia because of, um, you know, some of the, the pressures, the trauma that is in, induced in these systems that have been uh, historically structured around um, exclusion, right, um, and set up that way. And, and the practice of uh, finding community, I think that's why it speaks so deeply to, to the work that we're doing in community engagement, has the opportunity then to keep people longer, see um, change happen over over time and um, engage in processes of healing, right? So that our institutions need to understand that in its practices, it has harmed communities. If we are embodying some of these uh, practices into our institutions, then how can we focus on healing, building relationships, changing the dynamics, and at the end of the day, changing oppressive um, policies and, and tactics to the end of really getting to, to full participation where uh, those obstacles or those barriers um, are eliminated because we've engaged in a, um, our own truth and reconciliation process um, toward, towards healing. And that's hard work. Like it's not, it's not, um, it's not easy and it's not fluffy and it's not soft. It's actually um, courageous and hard and, and vulnerable. Um, but that's probably what, um, is the path towards like long range um, change. Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly for me that idea of sort of framing it as 
truth and reconciliation in a certain way at the individual level, uh, in addition to at a broader social level. I think, you know, I've been very impressed by I think uh, there hasn't been enough truth and reconciliation work, obviously, that's gone on in the United States. I think colleges and universities in a few cases have been really at the forefront of that. I think about the work Georgetown did on its historic relationship to slavery. We learned at University of San Diego while we were there for the conference about uh, some renaming processes that have been going on there in recognition of the histories of colonialism uh, and oppression that that the institution was connected to. And so th- that that for me uh, is a is a useful way to to think about it, that that's also a thing we have to do individually. um, And that does require looking inward uh, at ways we both have been and continue to be implicated in uh, relationships of power, et cetera. All right. That's good. I'm learning something, Marisol. And it just reminds me of the Audre Lorde quote that caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it's self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. Um, And so really thinking about these practices um, in the context of self-preservation, community preservation, um, and... I think also creating um, leadership styles that are inclusive and and culturally relevant and um, can lead us away from the hard-nosed, aggressive um, position that, you know, or our understanding of, of leadership now. All right. Well, thanks for an engaging conversation, Andrew, and reflection on the Continuums of Service Conference. Again, thank you for those who attended. Uh, Thank you to the Western Region Compacts for organizing. And I think they said this was the 20th anniversary of the conference. I think it was the 20th conference. 20th conference. Yeah. 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 So uh, I think it's one of our longest standing uh, conferences. So um, happy anniversary to Continuums. That's it for us uh, at Compact Nation Podcast. Thanks for listening. And always um, don't forget to rate and review our show. If you have any questions or suggestions, email us at podcast at compact.org or chime in on social media with hashtag Compact Nation Pod. Um, Thanks. And until next time. Bye. Bye bye. Compact Nation podcast comes to you from Campus Compact's national headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts. Our hosts are Marisol Morales, Emily Shields, and me, Andrew Seligson. Our producer is Molly Leeper. Music is by Andrew Savage. As always, you can find us online at compact.org slash podcast or on social media at hashtag Compact Nation pod. Thanks for listening. And remember, until you're satisfied that the world is good enough, keep doing something.